for fall break. Anybody enjoying fall break? Students? A couple of you? Yes. Adults are like, what is fall break? When do I get a break? Bunch of bitter adults. No, I'm just kidding. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, Let's go ahead and jump into our text for today. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be sitting in today. In our time together. James 1, just going to read three verses, verses 2 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask right now with everyone in this room that you would become ever present to our mind that you would give us a fresh awareness of your presence, that you are with us, that you inhabit the praises of your people. Poke and prod at the areas of our life this morning that need purging and pruning and ultimately the healing rays of your light. Would you speak now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in week five of our Stages of the Journey teaching series, more specifically our vision series And we call it a vision series because it's something that we're really leaning into greatly as a community. And we are asking the question that if we are on a journey with Jesus, specifically towards wholeness and completeness or maturity, then where am I in my journey? Where am I in this movement towards wholeness and maturity? What stage of this lifelong process am I living in? And I do want to remind all of us as human beings, every single one of us, follower of Jesus or not, you are on a journey. You are on a journey of becoming, a journey of becoming something or someone based on a vision that was given to you by someone, maybe by the the family you came from or by the culture around us or by some a uh, person in your field of study that has accomplished a lot, uh, or maybe some TikTok influencer, I don't know, but someone is teaching us and we are following in that vision, hoping and praying that we experience wholeness. But the first question that we have to ask 
is who or what is that person that is teaching us and recognizing that we are on a journey together. So in this teaching series, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, we want to know, I want to know for you and for myself, what stage of this lifelong process am I living in? And it is lifelong. Following Jesus is a lifelong experience that takes us through the entirety of our life. And our development into Christ-likeness, the process that is called sanctification, according to the New Testament, mirrors or parallels our biological development as children moving into adulthood. We've all moved from being children into being teens, into being adults, and then ultimately into becoming mature adults. And our formation into Christ-likeness mirrors and parallels that same journey. And as a brief reminder, these stages that we have been looking at, they all build off of each other. And they become domains of living within for all of us, specifically in our discipleship with Jesus. Again, we don't just go through one phase and then on to the next and we leave that one behind. We actually mature in all of the different domains in this map of formation to Christ's likeness. And so what we have done is we've synthesized various expressions of what's called stage theory throughout the Christian tradition, going back a couple thousand years, really, to the early church fathers and mothers. And we've come to five stages or five domains in our discipleship to Jesus. Moments with God, managing behavior, mission with Jesus, the movement inward, and modeling the life of Jesus. Now, as we've talked about, after the managing behavior phase, roughly in that period of time, there's a shift that happens in us where we move from being self-centered human beings to becoming others-centered, specifically focused on Christ and our neighbor. Because we are born with a heart that is bent inward on itself. And over time, that that heart of ours is being molded outward towards God and others. And then as we continue to mature, sometime in the journey, at some point down the road, as we follow Jesus, as we've been serving, as we've been participating in the life of the church, as we've been making disciples, we often hit what is referred to as a wall. And last week, we introduced this season that we often experience at some time and some point in our journey. And as I articulated, it's usually after we've been following Jesus for some time. Over a period of time, we've been following Jesus and we, we hit this, this moment that's referred to by Janet Hagberg and her book, The Critical Journey, as the wall. And we have to recognize that the majority of people in this room and in our community probably are not experiencing the wall majority of people are probably not experiencing what's also referred to by St. John of the Cross as the dark night of the soul. Uh, We all face trials, ordinary challenges to our formation to Jesus, but the dark night of the soul is very different. The wall and the dark night of the soul, matter of fact, are very different as well. And to clarify, the wall primarily is in reference to something that we go through. 
It's a crisis that happens in our life. Something that out of nowhere hits us. And sometimes it's actually inflicted on by us. We inflict pain on ourselves often. Or something else happens in our life that catalyzes this potential for moving into the dark night of the soul. But the wall and the dark night of the soul are two different realities But often, the wall is what catalyzes or can be the gateway for the dark night of the soul. So I want to be able to kind of clarify that this morning. The dark night of the soul is not primarily something that we go through. It's not just something that happens to us. But rather, it's someone working in us. Do we all understand that? That the dark night of the soul experience is not something necessarily that we go through, not primarily at least, but rather someone that is working within us. A wall usually is something that happens to us externally or even internally. And I've mentioned multiple things that those things could be. But that can become, not always, a gateway into a period of time referred to by St. John of the Cross in his poem about 500 years ago called The Dark Night of the Soul. But we realize in this moment that God is not something. God, in the language of St. John of the Cross, is nada. He is nothing. God is no thing that we endure. He is no thing that we go through. He is a person that is working within us. He is someone. He is no thing. And the entirety of the dark night of the soul is characterized by a season where God is removing his felt presence in order to do a deep, transformative work within the deep recesses of our life. Primarily, what he's doing in the dark night of the soul is he is ridding us of the idol of our sensualities and feelings of him. Because, as I mentioned last week, our principal desire, primarily when it comes to God, is to feel him rather than to worship him. And so, because of that, at some point in our formation, the feeling of him actually becomes an idol. And so he begins to work in us, removing this idol, removing these sensualities, which that doesn't necessarily mean in the sexual or erotic sense, but it just has to do with our physical senses. He will remove his felt presence in our life in order to do a deep, deep work within us. Because the majority of our formation and discipleship to Jesus up until this point primarily is driven by our feelings. Do I feel God or not? We leave a gathering on a Sunday morning and go, eh, that was okay. I felt a little something. But then the next week comes and you're like, man, we did my favorite songs this morning. And the sermon just spoke directly to me. And I felt something. Not a bad thing. But the way of Jesus is so much more than our feelings. So much more. And what I've come to realize, what we tend to do, especially I think as as younger believers in the way, is that in every single teaching or sermon, we try to put ourselves in the center of it. 
But that's not always the case. Okay? It's not always the case. But in the dark night of the soul, God is removing his felt presence. He's not removing his presence. He's removing our ability to feel his presence in order to do a deep work within the deep recesses of our life. And this pushes us inward. He's ridding us of these idols and disordered desires within us. Now, only if we allow him to do so. Because here's the beauty about God and Christ. He honors our dignity and our agency too much to force us to do anything. He wants us to participate with him in this process. And we will talk about that a bit this morning. By the way, did you guys get through last week okay? Someone walked out of the the gathering and they looked at me and they're like, I felt like I was in a war zone. And I was like, that's because you were. You were. We are in a fight. In the heavenly realms, we are experiencing a fight between the divine beings of darkness and the divine beings of heaven. And we are in a war. But most of us just live distracted and unaware of the war that's happening until we come to recognize it's happening. And often we come to that point and we back up and go, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not entering into that. There's a reason why some of us won't watch certain movies because the darkness does something to us, does it not? There's a reason why some of us don't do haunted trails this time of the year, and I'm one of them, okay? Now, some of y'all love that stuff, and I'm really, I'm really curious as to why, just really. I don't want anyone jumping out with me with a chainsaw trying to scare me into oblivion. I don't want that, right? But there's a reason why even there are certain documentaries where, like, I can't watch it. Why? Darkness is real. Real. And in this season, God is doing something within us. He's removing his felt presence in order to do a deep work. It is a season in which he removes the picture of him that we have fell in love with. Because most of us have primarily, early on in our journey, have fallen in love with a picture of God. With an idea of God. He's become an avatar for us. He's become a creative player for us. It's funny, you talk to some people and it seems as though everything that God believes, they believe. Or everything they believe, God believes. And I'm like, actually, that seems to be a projection of yourself. And so what God does in this season is he helps delineate the difference between you and him, and the picture that we have fallen in love with. And he prunes us in order to be freed and liberated to actually love him, to choose to love him, to not just be in the honeymoon phase any longer, because there comes a moment, guys, in relationship, friendship or marriage, you name it, where you're really enjoying all the sensations that you get from kicking it with that person, and at some point you have to choose to love them. I told Selah the other day, and I love my wife. We have an amazing marriage. I just want you guys to know my wife is amazing. She is my ride or die. She's my baby girl. She's my, my everything. Okay, she's not my everything, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but she was kind of getting on my nerves. And, uh, you know, happens occasionally. Um, once a day, you know, whatever. And uh, I looked at Selah. I said, Selah, I'll be honest with you. Your mother right now is forcing me to choose to love her. Because right now I don't feel like it. I really don't at all. Anybody resonate with that? 
You got friends even who you love hanging out with, and at some point they get on your absolute nerves. It happened, you know? You spend all day with a friend, and by the end of the day, you're like, I'm actually sick of you now. Can you go home? Thank you. You know, we'll still be friends. I'm, I'm choosing to love you, but right now I'm not really feeling it any longer. There comes a moment in our discipleship with Jesus where you don't feel it any longer. You have to choose to love. You have to choose. It doesn't mean it goes away forever, no. But what he does is he helps you get past the honeymoon phase where you are disciplined enough and committed to him, not just a picture of him. And he forces our hand to choose to love him even when we don't feel it. He creates opportunities for us to choose. He is also emptying us in order to receive his never-ending love. He is reordering our disordered loves that all of us have and our displaced desires. Because here's the deal. Distractions, coping mechanisms, escapism, and even therapy does work for some time. It does. The escapist behaviors that you have to avoid the deepest longings of your being and the deep recesses of your heart, that will work for a period of time until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. And our heart at that point still yearns for completion and wholeness. Even though we've been doing the things, self-care, self-help, reading, you know, Brene Brown, going to therapy, you know, going on walks middle of the day, sitting in the grass, taking our shoes off, like we're doing all the things, something still bubbles up in the surface, under the surface, I should say. And we realize that we are still feeling like we are not complete or whole. And our heart yearns for that. Because here's the deal. We can't liberate ourselves no matter how many mechanisms that you try to create and put in your life, you cannot liberate yourself because you enslaved yourself and you enslave yourself often. Someone has to liberate you. And here's another reality, and specifically as it pertains to desire. We live in a society that's therapeutic. It's all about desires. Do what you want. Do what makes you feel good, quote unquote, which is actually terrible advice. Do not ever take that advice, okay? Not helpful. So here's the idea of, about desire. This is from Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher, for, was a philosopher for years at University of Southern California. Here's what he says. Human desire is infinite by its nature. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. We are preachers of desire, and desire is infinite. But these coping mechanisms and these little rendezvous, so to speak, will not provide the deepest sense of fulfillment. Why? Because desires are infinite. You need someone that is infinite to provide wholeness in that infinite void in your life. And so idols and unhealthy attachments in our life function like a dam. They function like a dam. They block our heart and mind from receiving rivers of living water. So, God 
begins removing the debris in order that healing might be brought to utter completion. Now, what is tricky is that we are often the ones who create the dams. Because here's what dams do. Dams create pools. Dams create lakes. And at lakes, you can have fun. At lakes, you can recreate. You can enjoy time at the lake. But all lakes are created by a dam. And what happens when a dam is created is it impinges on the work and flow of the river. In other words, what happens in our own life is that we get distracted, I think, by the comfortability created by the dam. While at the same time, the ecosystem in our life on the other side of the dam is drying up because it needs the flow of the Spirit. So we often create these dams in order to recreate and sort of distract ourselves from moving into the deeper recesses of our inner ecosystem for healing. Because we'd much rather have fun at the lake than the river going into the places that we honestly just do not want to go. And I don't know if you know this or not, you're very complex. Have you ever been inside your head before? You do not want to go in mine, I promise complex, complex. We're complex people. Humans are complex. There's a whole realm of study called psychology. Why? Because we're complex. We're complex creatures. And so what we do, especially in the modern West, is we distract ourselves by this comfortability, even though what is actually happening is that the ecosystem on the other side of the dam is drying up. So this process moves us inward. It gives us the choice to move inward into the cracks and the crevices of our inner being that we simply don't want to be confronted with. I would imagine if I spoke to you and began asking some probing questions, there's probably some spaces in your life that you don't want to go. There are some experiences you've had. You don't want to relive that experience. There's trauma that's there. It's an accelerated pain that comes from remembering. And most of us don't want to go there. We avoid it at all cost. In other words, it feels a bit like we have scary basements in our life. How I many of you guys grew up with a scary basement? I mean, a lot of us have seen scary basements before where you're like, <laughs> I'm not going down there, especially at night. Not a chance. There's weird noises. Smells like grandma's closet. There might be snakes. Not sure. There's at least some cockroaches and some bugs. I'm not going into the scary basement. Even though, guess what? It's your scary basement. It's yours. The invitation inward is to go into the basement. To go into the deep recesses. Because here's the deal. Jesus is renovating you. He is renovating your heart and your mind and your spirit. And if we are going to renovate this home, Jesus says, we got to go there. We've got to go in there. And and to be honest, some of us even won't go into therapy because we don't want to go there. We think we can get through it ourselves. So we deny, 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 numb, numb, numb. But it festers over time inside of us. And Jesus says, let's go into the basement together. And John of the Cross uses the dark night of the soul as imagery Not as a reference only, as I mentioned earlier, to ordinary trials or even suffering. 
but rather in reference to mysterious and ominous and obscure work done by God in the dark. The dark night language is not evil language. I just want us to be aware of that. It has to do with obscurity and mystery. That God is doing something that, to be honest, we can't see. And he's, he's working in the dark, so to speak, because if we saw the Lord approaching that area of our life in the daylight, we wouldn't allow him to go there. We would pull away. And so he leads us through the dark, and often the only thing we can see in front of us is maybe a hand. And he says, let's go into this place. And so we don't know where he's working necessarily, but he is working we're kind of curious as to what's actually happening. We come to a place in our formation, as I said last week, where the spiritual disciplines, they just don't work. What used to work to feel God doesn't any longer. But something's, something's different. You're kind of wondering, what is God doing in my inner being right now? This is very odd. And, and keep in mind, too, that there is a difference between the invitation into the wilderness and choosing not to drink water. Some of us are like, I, I think I'm in the dark night of the soul. Because I, I just don't want to get into the Bible right now. And it's like, well, um, are, you, are you continuing to like, practice the discipline? No, I'm not. There's a difference between the invitation into the wilderness and choosing not to practice the disciplines of being with Jesus. I want us to be aware of that. Because what happens in the dark night of the soul is you're practicing the disciplines and something's not happening. That is the main difference. And so he leads us through the dark. And more than likely, he is guiding us into this basement, so to speak, that we don't want to go into. And he does this because if it were solely up to us, we would not go there. We would not enter into that place. So it then becomes an invitation into the desert. An invitation into the wilderness. So we experienced we experience desert dryness, so to speak, where we don't really know where we're going. If you know where you're going in your formation, you're probably not in the dark night of the soul. If you don't know where you're going, there is a chance you might be, potentially. I don't know. But he invites us into the desert. And the desert becomes a key motif in the entire scope of the scriptures. Listen to this from... Marlena Graves, who wrote a book called A Beautiful Disaster. Here's what she has to say about the idea of the desert. Scripture is full of examples of how God used the desert to reveal himself and to spiritually form his people. Here's some examples. Abraham, Hagar, Jacob, Miriam, Moses, the Israelites, David, Elijah, Jonah, John the Baptist, and Paul all spent time in the wilderness. They weren't alone either. The desert fathers and mothers made their homes in the wilderness. All these giants of the faith spent time in the physical desert, but were also intimately acquainted with the interior desert. Eventually, God sends all who truly seek to know him into a spiritual wilderness. She goes on to say, God uses the desert of the soul our suffering and difficulties, our pain, our dark nights, call them what you will, to form us, to make us beautiful souls. 
The wilderness, here's what the wilderness does, has a way of curing our illusions about ourselves and teaching us to spend more, it's teaching us to depend more and more on God. When we first enter, we're convinced we're entered, we've entered into the bowels of hell. But on our pilgrimage or on our journey, we discover that the desert drips with the divine. Love that. We discover that desert land is fertile ground for spiritual activity, transformation, and renewal. Come to the desert, Jesus says. I want to do a deep work in you. And as I mentioned, he will not force you and I in. But we won't go in without him. So there is a divine cooperation that's happening. And this season is also presented, I mentioned last week as one of pruning, but the New Testament also presents this as dying to one's self. Dying to one's self. We are obviously, as I referenced a few weeks ago, at the beginning of the teaching series, um, jumping into the fall season. And one of the things that people love about the fall is what? It's the changing of the leaves. We love to see the colors of leaves changing. In fact, right now actually is the peak time for fall leaves uh, up in the mountains. So in the western part of North Carolina right now is the peak time to see the colors change um, in terms of the leaves. But did you know why leaves are changing colors? Anybody know? They're dying. They're dying. And we find it utterly beautiful. The dark night of the soul is a season of us dying to ourself. But it's utterly beautiful. And we begin to actually see as we mature the beauty in it as well. This movement inward is where Jesus brings us to a place where we not only see the necessity of dying to ourself, but we also begin to see the beauty that comes from it. Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, on a couple of occasions, is almost begging God to know him in his sufferings. Like Paul is so drawn by Jesus that he wants to know him and his sufferings. Like that blows, I'm not one to pray for suffering, okay? That's sadistic, I'm not saying that, I'm not for self-martyrdom, any of that. But I want to know Jesus. And Paul is saying, if you want to know Jesus, you got to know his way. If you want resurrection, you got to die. To yourself. Now, this doesn't mean you mutilate yourself or you kill yourself. That is not it. What it means is that you have these disordered desires, disordered loves. You have a a flesh side of you that is in contrast to the spirit. What the spirit wants is not what the flesh wants. And you are a conflicted person. In the realm of psychology, we call this the true self and the false self. And so what happens is we begin to die to our false self. 
and these disordered desires. And the Spirit then comes in us to provide for us an alternative to redirect those desires in the proper place. But we cannot experience new life with Christ without dying. We can't even experience beauty without dying. It is required. Dying to these idols in our life produces a new kind of life. Now, look at John chapter 12, verse 24. This is the words of Jesus. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Fruit in our life begins with the death of a seed. You die to one thing and birth another. You die to one thing and you birth another. Fruit is only bore because of a seed that dies. And the process that we are going through is necessary for our liberation and for our freedom into wholeness. But it does feel like God has utterly disappeared. Utterly disappeared. And this is only because we can't fully see the work that is happening. So we think that he has abandoned us deserted us, and forsaken us. We even see this with Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Did God forsake Jesus? No. Did the Father forsake Jesus? No. In fact, I think because of the divine dance of the Trinity, they are all participating in the crucifixion together. He has not deserted us or forsaken us or abandoned us. He has simply gone silent. And Pete Gregg says this, we mustn't miss God's silence for his absence. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is there with you. He says over and over again, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with us. He's just silent. But you know what I find interesting about silence and people who go silent? Often when a person is silent... It's because they are hard at work. They're focused. Think about when you want to get a lot of work done in your office, whatever it may be. You probably don't want a lot of distractions from others and a lot of noise. You probably want to be focused on your work. Now, that's not everyone. Just generalization, I realize that. But most of us, if we go silent and go into that work mode, we're working hard and we're we're silent in some regard. And I believe that the silence of God in this season is actually a signal to him working hard in our interior life. He's doing something inside of us. And because this is a season, as we mature, there's a strong possibility that it will happen multiple times. I just want us to all be aware that the dark night of the soul is not something we just get through and get to the other side. Because life is is seasonal, we will probably come back to a dark night of the soul season again at some point. But not only is he freeing us from these idols and for love, but he's also doing something else in this season. He is enlarging our capacity for more of him. He is enlarging our inner capacity 
for more of him. Look at James 1, the the passage we just read. James 1, verses 3 through 4. By the way, these are verses that I hate to read. I hate these few verses. Because I'm like, who has joy in suffering? I mean, honestly. Like, I mean, what in the world, James? What's happening here, you know? But I want to lean into it because there's something taking place. So James 1, just verses 3 through 4. He says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Tests, trials, pruning, the dark night of the soul, all are meant to produce something inside of us. They all are meant to produce perseverance in us. And the testing of your faith in the dark night of the soul is actually producing perseverance, producing steadfastness, producing endurance. God empties in order to be filled, but he also stretches us in order to enlarge our capacity to experience more of him and to love him more. He is building an endurance, a stamina, a fortitude, and a perseverance within us in order or so that we may be mature. In other words, maturity doesn't occur without the work of perseverance. The work of perseverance is the enlarging of our capacity. Um, this is a, a confessional moment as a parent of a young one. Early on, uh, parenting, Sayla was maybe three or four months old. Uh, some of you know this, maybe you don't, but um, I'm confessing, so please like, just really give me some grace and love here as I'm being vulnerable. But uh, I turned around, I, I let Sayla lay on the couch by herself. She's kind of in that rolling phase. You know where this is going. And I, I turned to go to the kitchen to go get her, her milk because I was going to feed her. And as I turn around, I just hear a boom, like thud, boom, onto the floor. And girl does the silent cry for like 10 seconds. And my heart's literally melting. Like literally. You know when your baby does that silent, they're like, but nothing's coming out? I'm like, oh no, this is really bad. Then she starts screaming bloody murder. Screaming for like 10 minutes. And what's fascinating is that I'm pretty sure if you or I were to roll off of the couch for whatever reason, you're probably not going to have that same reaction. Why? Your capacity to endure is enlarging. Remember the first time you fell off your bike? Wailed, screamed, bloody murder. You thought that you were just stabbed. Seriously. Some of you are like, I don't even want to go there. That's, the, that's my dark basement. I'm not going to remember trying to learn how to ride a bike. Okay. Screaming bloody murder. But then guess what? You probably fell again and you got through it. The dark night of the soul is God enlarging our capacity. You going through things actually allows you the opportunity to receive more. And maturity is part of this. I even think about people who who lift or who run. You start here, and then over time, your capacity to lift more enlarges. Corey Heath's never, he hasn't always looked like that. I promise. Corey hasn't always looked like that. 
and neither have I. Okay? Neither have I. Runners. Right? You see some people and, and they're runners and they run marathons. And you're like, did you just do that overnight? No! They went through pain and suffering and endured to get to that place. What used to feel like you were dying running two miles, you're like, that's no big deal now. I push through. I go to four. Same thing in our own inner life. You might be going through something and you might feel like the world is utterly falling down. But guess what? God wants to bring you through to enlarge your capacity to experience not only more of him, but to go through something else in the future to enlarge even more. This is how the world works. James K.A. Smith says, there is illumination that comes from going through things. Insight only possible because you and I have undergone. Most of the things we've learned about life is because we've gone through something. We've gone through a season. We've experienced some sort of trial or challenge or, or suffering. So our capacity is actually being enlarged. And some of you have gone through some great trials in your life, great challenges where God, you feel like, has gone silent. And you've wrestled with him. And you didn't know how you were going to make it through. But guess what? You are here. I'm here. Keep going through. Keep walking. You know, both Judas and Peter deny Jesus. Both of them do. Peter's response is just different. He keeps walking. But Judas has a sense of shame and he kills himself. The experience is the same. The response is different. We all have a response in the things that we're going through. We have a choice to make. Will I go through or will I not? So now we come to the final part of our conversation about the movement inward and specifically the dark night of the soul, by asking the question, how do we move through these seasons? How do we move through? Because we do. Eventually, there is a dawn. There is the, the glimmer of the sun. We do move through. The first thing I want to talk about is the practice of remembrance. Remembrance. Not nostalgia, which is just wishing for the past. Some of us in the dark night of the soul just wish we were back where we were five years ago. That's not the same as remembrance. That's wanting to live in the past. You can't. You know, you talk to some people who are like, man, I wish life was like it was back in the 60s. Oh, man. I wish life was like it was back when I was a kid. That's called nostalgia. Not a bad thing necessarily, but it's not the same thing as remembrance or remembering. But it is a future hope that's rooted in past moves of God. And the people of God, all through the scriptures, are a people of memory. Constantly recounting the story of Israel. Remember the story, guys. Remember the story that you and I are a part of. Remember the grand narrative. I even think about the Emmaus story, as I mentioned. These are two disciples that have hit a wall because their Messiah has died and they don't know what has happened so what does Jesus do as he is walking with them and he's not even recognized by them? He begins reminding them of the prophets. He begins reminding them of the story. When you're in a season, a dark night season, remember the story. 
And one way that you can do this is by engaging with the liturgical calendar, which we love. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and ordinary time. It helps to recenter ourselves in a larger story. And I think that there is some liberation that comes with that. Here's another practice in terms of remembrance that I think is helpful in this kind of season. Is uh, read some dead people. Read some people who've been through it. Go read some people who've been through it. Go read Practice the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Go read Experiencing God Through Prayer by Madame Guyon. Go read Confessions by St. Augustine. Go read The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. Which, by the way, Emma picked it up. Way to go, Emma. Proud of you. She picked it up. That's courageous. Brave of you to pick up that poem. Go read these works of people who have gone before us. It immerses ourselves in an ancient and transcultural church community. Here's the second thing that we can do to move through. Is that we need confessional community. Confessional community. You and I have to go through this season with people. The Emmaus story, again, perfect example. There are two disciples. Potentially, there's a good chance they're husband and wife. Walking on the road. They're walking through this together, discussing it together. You need to walk through with people. You cannot go alone. I love the first three steps of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which this reeks of dark night language all over it, everywhere. Here's the first three steps. The first is that we admitted we were powerless and our lives were unmanageable. Key word there is what? We. We together, collectively. The second is we came to believe a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. The third is that we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. And it's interesting, if you get into the 12-step program, all 12 are deeply powerful and ring of dark night language. Just, it just smells like dark night language. Very helpful stuff here. And AA is very successful, in case you guys did not know. Very successful program. But it starts with we. We as a community. Another thing you could do is find a spiritual director. Okay? Find a spiritual director or a counselor that's a believer or an older, mature believer to walk you through. Because here's the deal. A podcast is not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. You need someone in the flesh and in person to walk with you through whatever you're going through. Whatever you're going through. And be slow about the decisions that you're making. Be slow about the theology you're developing. We live in a fast-paced culture. We develop fast theologies. Be slow. The ancients were slow. Slow. You need someone in your life to be honest with to share that you're going through the season, to share your doubts, to share that you're wrestling with God, to share you're not even sure if he exists, to share about God and his silence. You need people who have been there, done that, walk through it. Here's the third piece in terms of how we move through. Worship. Worship. And I would even say specifically praising and exalting the Lord with our mouth. In other words, raise your hands even if you don't feel it. By yourself, in corporate, in corporate community, in gathering, whatever. But worship. Exalt the Lord over and over again. You might not feel it. Keep exalting the Lord. You're good. 
you're wonderful, you're faithful, you're beautiful. As I was reading this morning in my own time with the Lord in Psalm 66, we see that even creation itself worships the Lord. Creation worships. We are part of creation. We need to worship. In this season, even if you don't feel it, worship. Raise your hands even if you don't feel it, so to speak. Exalt the Lord. James K. Smith goes on to say that worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. And as we move in the season and mature, what we realize is that prayer and worship over time becomes less of what we do and more of what God does in us. For a long time, we thought prayer was something we do. And it's something that we offer in worship. But over time, we realize it's actually God doing something in us. We become in some ways less and less active. And God becomes more and more active. You can also read ancient prayers of the church. Prayer is really hard in the dark night season. Really hard. But read ancient prayers. Read the Psalms. This is why we love liturgy. When you don't know what to pray, read someone else's prayer. It's helpful. It's very practical. The fourth piece here is obedience. In other words, obey anyway. Even if you don't feel it, even if you're wrestling, obey anyway. Jesus in Gethsemane is praying and asking, Lord, Father, will you take this cup from me? Take this cup of suffering from me. But then he does say, not my will, but yours be done. Obey anyway. Walk in obedience. That is the way through the dark night of the soul. Obedience. The uh, Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser says, an unpopular, as unpopular as this advice might be in a world that tells you, above all, to do your own thing, bend your will according to the Beatitudes of Jesus, stand before your loved ones and before your God and practice saying what Jesus said to his father in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Then come back in a few years and tell me whether or not God still seems absent within your experience. <laughs> you do that for a few years. Not my will, but yours be done. Come back. Tell me. Tell us. Does God still seem absent? I bet he won't. I bet he won't. The fifth thing and the last is simply patience. Patience or steadfastness. Move slowly through this season. Let God do the work. Move slowly. You will come to realize that your finitude is actually a grace and a gift. The fact that you are finite, not just that you will die, but you have great limitations, is a gift because it means that you don't have to have it all figured out. You can't. Embrace your finitude. The world isn't on your shoulders. This actually frees us to be patient. It frees us. Luke 21, 19, Jesus says, By your endurance, you will gain your life. By your steadfastness and patience over the long haul, you will gain your life. The way in which we endure change is the way we shape who we become. The way you and I experience and respond and endure change is the way that we shape who we become. How you respond to trials and adversity and challenge and God's silence. How you respond when you keep missing shots, missing shots, missing shots. How you respond when you struggle on that test. How you respond when your spouse just got really angry at you for doing something. How you respond in our life has everything to do with who we become. Tish Harrison Warren in her book, um, Prayer in the Night, says the hope of God offers us uh, excuse me, the hope of God offers us is this. 
He will keep close to us, even in darkness, in doubt, in fear, and vulnerability. He does not promise to keep bad things from happening. He does not promise the night will not come, or that it will not be terrifying, or that we will immediately be tugged to shore. He promises that we will not be left alone. He will keep watch with us in the night. We must be, as a people, taken into the places of our lives where we do not want to go in order for healing to occur. And we have to release those spaces that we have grip over to the Father and to the Spirit to do a deep work of healing. But we won't go there on our own. In Psalm 131, we see a picture of the dark night of the soul that St. John of the Cross speaks of in his book, his poem, where the psalmist says, But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. In some way, the dark night of the soul and the work that Christ is doing in us is like a mother weaning their child off of breast milk. It's comforting. It's close. It feels good. But I don't know that when you're seven, eight years old, you're going to be on breast milk. Unless you're really, really hippie. Like, I don't know. Maybe you are really hippie. I don't know. But there's a reason why. We move from milk to meat. And it might feel cruel for a season. It might seem like cruelty. But it is actually for our good. Even if there is loss. And there is some loss there. But it's for our good. And it's in this season that we move away just from the pleasure principle where we're walking by our feelings and we begin walking by faith, choosing to love God even when we don't feel Him. We come to a place where the dawn begins to move in closer and we actually begin to see that life looks more like peace, humility, contemplation, and ultimately holy love. The dawn of the dark night of the soul, when we come to realize what God has been doing, you're like, oh man, for the last three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, this is what God was doing. We find ourselves in a place of peace. We find ourselves in a place of humility. We find ourselves in a place of contemplation. We contemplate God and ultimately holy love. And we also come to realize that no longer is it God in me, but it's actually God in me and I in God. The ancients called this union or theosis. But we have to go through a purgation, a purification, a refinement. God has to extract the silver out. He has to refine. He has to prune. He has to cleanse the dirt so that the beauty can come forth. And God will test us so that we might be refined. Human beings, Gerald May says in his synthesis of John of the Cross's work, exist because of love. And the meaning and goal of our lives is love. In Christian understanding, everything that is authentic in the spiritual life points toward the increasing fulfillment of the two great commands to love God and other people in a completely unfettered way. Liberation from attachment is only a means to this end. May we be a people 
who let perseverance finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Who don't merely worship our senses of God, but worship the person of God. Recognizing, as as I mentioned, he isn't separate from us, but rather we are in him and he is in us. And we have been not only united in his death, but we've also been and will be united in his resurrection. So we're going to come to the table this morning. And as we come to the table,